welcome to the 77th episode of The Week with Roger, a conversation between analysts about all things telecom, media, and technology from Recon Analytics. I'm Don Kellogg, and with me as always is Roger Entner. How you doing, Roger? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. So this week we're talking supply chain, and we're pleased to have Leonard Lee and Matt Hamblin on the podcast. Leonard is the managing director and founder of Next Curve, and Matt Hamblin is the editor of Fierce Electronics and an all-around great guy. How you doing, guys? <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks for having us. Really looking forward to this. Yeah, thank you. Cool. So let's get into it. There's been a lot of talk over the last six months around semi-supply chain issues, and those issues have obviously rippled throughout the entire economy. Leonard, can you give us an update on where we stand today with supply chain? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a really, it's actually a really good and complicated question. And I think the simple way of characterizing where we are at the moment is we're in a shortage situation to a certain degree, right? And when we think about shortage, though, I think we might be thinking a little too simplistically about what we mean by that, because the shortage really is rooted in, you know, some imbalances in supply and demand in the supply chain for certain nodes. And it has a, a number of rippling effects in terms of impact on supply chains for end market products. So, you know, a great example, I think is sort of the poster child at the moment for the impact of supply chain issues or shortage is the uh, auto industry, right? We hear about it all the time, how there are parts that are in short supply. And so, you know, we've had, you know, factory shutdowns because there weren't enough semiconductor parts or modules or ECUs uh, to put into the vehicles that are dependent on these electronic components. And, uh, you know, we can look across a lot of different other categories of devices, whether it's smartphones or laptops. There, There seems to be this persistent issue, but it's a really, really complicated situation. It's probably not going to be a very easy problem to, to solve going forward. Yeah, but I think we have to look at it in a more differentiated and, and nuanced way. When I look at the auto industry, a lot of the auto industry semiconductors where they have problems are semiconductors with 30, 50, 100, 200 nanometer resolution. These are made in factories that have been fully amortized and it's several generations of technology in the back. Nobody will build a new 200 nanometer semiconductor factory because they have no chance whatsoever. For the mobile industry, right, the chipsets, the the, the CPUs, they are on four and five nanometers. There's not really shortage there, but in all the attached you know, the, the power amplifiers and there, there we have problems, right? And so it, it's really a hodgepodge and, and it highlights that when one part is missing, the entire system is not working, right? And it can be a 10 cent component, but it's built in a factory where with old technology where Nobody has an interest anymore of, of building that because the new parts would be so expensive that nobody would probably buy it anyway. 
So it, it's a it's a challenge. And then you know we're we're talking here on the day where where Russia invades Ukraine, and which I think is when I, if I would be China, I would look at this as a test case of how does the West respond when one country invades another country where, for example, Russia denies that that Ukraine has the right to exist, right? And China says Taiwan is just a province and we will reunify. And what happens if China tries to reunify with Taiwan with force, like Russia is going to reunite Ukraine with with Russia today, then we have a whole other mess, right? Yeah. The whole supply chain around the world is going to be affected by the Ukraine situation, and it won't just be because of chips. It'll be all the other components and fuel, all of it. One of the interesting notions I saw today was that a survey had indicated in the U.S. that uh, half of new car buyers backed off to get older cars just because there was a chip problem with one of the new cars they wanted to buy. So, you know, that's back to your point there. They may be on older nodes, but just one chip is what's they had pictures of Ford F-180 sitting out on a racetrack in in Midwest, you know, like 200 of them. I mean, I think they're still there <laughs> anyway. Right. And And if we look at the situation in the Ukraine, I mean, from a semiconductor industry perspective, I mean, that's where I think like 90% of the neon is produced. And it's a it's an important input into a lot of the lithography equipment, right? The lasers that go into, you know, EUV uh, lithography machines, right? And so uh, it's not just the chips, it's that entire supply chain going from fab equipment to the fabs to you know the chip design to the final assembly testing all that stuff all that's being disrupted number 1 for due to forces that are you know that we have some control over because policy we can control and things that are un- not within our control and i think that's one of the you know Roger you wrote this really great piece that talks about resilience and supply chains resiliency I think this is one of the the big tests that the industry faces, especially the U.S. industry for semiconductors. Yeah, and, and thank you for for the for the shout out. And you know, in the article which I wrote on 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 Fierce Electronics, where where Matt is the editor in chief there, I call for that that you have to move the entire value chain out of a region that is, you know, can be disrupted and, and and interrupted. And so when you have Intel building factory new fabs in Ohio and in Germany, and not everything that goes into the final products also moves with it, and all the suppliers for these fabs move with it, then you have it's it's a Potemkin's village, right? It looks like oh we're so independent, but if if the neon is missing that we we get currently from Ukraine, or if if we have some components missing that they they come from from China, and if China feels like in, invading Taiwan, nobody can stop them. 
or at least destroy it, right? Then, then that whole chain breaks down. The weakest link of the chain is what determines the resilience of the entire chain. And, and so I think this is a wake-up call for, for the West to move, even though it's very expensive, to move the entire chain. Yeah, something like 70% of all the really you know small node chips, five nanometers and smaller, they come out of Asia. I mean, they come out of China, Taiwan, you know, Vietnam, Korea. Malaysia, yeah. Yeah, Malaysia. I mean, so it's really, 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 really constant. South Korea and Japan, and that, that they will all be affected if, if the, the, the Taiwan situation with China would blow up. Right. It's, it's kind of scary times. I mean, what about the idea of, of what Intel's doing and others to, to build plants in the U.S.? Is that going to be even a drop in the bucket? Is not going to be enough, right? Well, it's the first step. But the entire value chain has to move with it, right? Yeah, that's what makes the whole recent acquisition of Tower Semiconductor really interesting, right? Because a lot of what they do, they focus on sensor designs, you know, some of the things that take advantage of legacy manufacturing processes. And so if you look at uh, Intel and the capacity uh, that they have, uh, a lot of it, you you could say, is to your point earlier, Roger, some of the older stuff that's been depreciated that would probably be ripe for these types of devices made at this process node. But, you know, the problem really boils down to how long it will take to actually realize capacity, to bring that capacity to market. And, you know, as we look at this potential of reinventing or restructuring the semiconductor or the, quite frankly, the electronics industry supply chain, there's a huge risk that's associated with the move. Not only is it going to be tremendously expensive, as you pointed out in your article, Roger, it exposes us to a period of significant risk in terms of competitiveness in the marketplace. And there's a number of things that are are at play that have really been instigated by U.S. policy, especially during the Trump administration, where they took a hard line against China. But as part of that policy of blacklisting or putting companies on the entity list, they also constrained a lot of our trade partners in Taiwan and South Korea from selling to uh, companies like Huawei, and especially to Huawei, right? And that's prompted, like, for instance, China, the consortium of uh, semiconductor manufacturers there to now, think, uh, you know, consider incubating their own fab equipment industry because they, they procure 90% of their equipment from the United States. So that all becomes restricted in terms of if the United States decides, okay, we're going to uh, put some sort of trade embargo on, on China. So you can't provide five nanometer capacity to Huawei, right? You know, a lot of these policies are really restrictive to some of our trade partners. And so they're reacting. So it's like, uh, it's going to be a really difficult transition and there could be a lot at risk here that it's not being talked about. And this is true, for example, if the the fab with US IP and all the fabs of US IP sits outside China, the moment it sits in China and we say, oh, here are sanctions and you can't use that fab. Well, 
may I remind us that we have, in case of conflicts, have expropriated patents. You know, in in World War One, the U.S. took the patents for aspirin from Bayer, and it took Bayer a hundred years to have the aspirin patent on the aspirin trade name in the U.S. back, and they had to buy it back. So I think when push comes to shove and China invades Taiwan, I don't think they care about the U.S. sanctioning them and saying, but boys, now that you invaded this country, you're not allowed to use our IP to build chips anymore. You know, they will tell you, you know, you can shove that wherever you want to. You know, you're not the boss of us anymore. Thank you. Yeah. Right? That's the yeah. other th- side. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing that falls silent in war are the laws. I'm sure I'm butchered that quote, but, you know, that's even the Romans <laughs> said that. But, I mean, it seems like China's already asserted itself in that respect. I mean, and I think you pointed it out, both of you guys, that many times that you know, sometimes IPs stolen or all of the uh, agreements that people have to make to do business in China, you know, make it really difficult to do. So that that superiority is, I think, probably already there. I mean, I think it's finally China has just woken up and realized that, well, in the last five years. I will write an article about it, about the, the whole supply chain issue and situation from the Chinese perspective, because you know, we're on different sides, but from their point of view, a lot of the things they do have, have a lot of sound reasons. Doesn't mean you agree with them. And and you have the, your perspective. You know, a lot of people think that there is American exceptionalism and, and the rules don't apply to us, that apply to others. China feels the same way, right? You know, and, and acts upon it. So, yeah. Can't blame that, you know. The other thing that we need to remind ourselves of is that, you know, this was really what we're experiencing right now, what we're witnessing right now with the chip shortage is really an outcome of policy, right? Before the tech war was started, and you can argue that it was like 2019 where it really started to cascade and we saw a deterioration in relationships between U.S. and China. It was not in the interest of China to have all the stuff fall apart, right? Now, what is very clear is we saw a tit for tat, you know, deterioration of our trade relationships and, and, you know, national security was brought up as a reason why. But the fact of the matter is, is if you look at the entity list and the policies of restricting or basically blacklisting Chinese firms was enacted, you oftentimes hear people say, well, you know, China, Chinese companies like Huawei, they've been disarmed, right? They don't have chips. Well, that's not true. Almost all of the chip manufacturing, uh, U.S. chip manufacturers have licenses to sell to Huawei, to ZTE. And, you know, when it comes to the advanced process to know stuff for the smartphones, well, yeah, sure. They had to sell off a large part of their smartphone portfolio to a a government-owned consortium, investment consortium, and it's now called Honor. Well, guess what? Qualcomm is selling all their advanced 5G chips as well as the Snapdragon to Honor. So the net net effect of all of this is that nothing's really changed except for maybe some structural things, right? So, well, you know, there's the saying that 
if you're not sure that you will kill the king, don't attack him because nothing is worse than a wounded king and the revenge will be will be significant. And when you look at Huawei, Huawei has, has an investment arm and that is explicitly investing in the entire value chain from soup to nuts because they learned their lesson because our our sanctions were so incomplete that they wounded Huawei, but they didn't kill it, right? And by the way, all the things you can accuse Huawei of, you can accuse every Chinese company oh, of. Yeah. So singling out Huawei is, in a way, unfair to Huawei. They're just the the nail that stuck out the, 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 the furthest, and therefore it got hammered first. But all the accusations you can levy against Huawei, you can levy against every other Chinese company. And then you have the question, do you want... On what terms do you want to trade with China? Right, right. And, and you know, the, the, it's funny that you bring that up, Roger, because you, know, you could apply the same arguments or sentiments toward South Korean companies and Taiwanese companies in the past, right? Some are allies and some are not. Some work with us and some are adversaries. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and even from a, a trade relations perspective, we've historically had issues whether it's true policy issues or ideological issues with, you know, rising Asian economies. You know, when I was in South Korea back in the 90s, I heard the same kind of stuff that we're hearing today about China directed toward South Korea, you know, that South Koreans were dumping steel. I mean, because, you know, South Korea was a leader at Pohang, steel. Yeah. One of the, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and there were accusations, you know, theft, IP theft, all that. Heard all of that back in the 90s. And but there's a difference between economic competition, however rules-based or not rules-based it is, and, and national security issues. And yeah. you know, yeah. in economics, one of the interesting things about pure economics is that open trade helps everybody, even if you trade with somebody who cheats. Even the country that is cheated benefits, still benefits from it, right? So there we have things at the margins, whereas there are other pieces when you deal with, with non-allies. And I don't think anybody ever suspected that South Korea is not an ally. Japan is not an ally, right? We're on the same side. You know, we squabble at, at the margins, but fundamentally, we're on the same side. Not sure we can say that about, you know. I didn't. I didn't hear you say that about Taiwan, though. I mean, are we writing off Taiwan here, or you know, where does Taiwan sit in the middle of all of this? I mean, obviously, well, Taiwan is like Ukraine, right? Right, neutral zone country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. because of the one China policy of of the People's right. Republic, yeah, we have decided we want to have diplomatic relations and trade with. The People's Republic, and so we we stopped diplomatic relations with with Taiwan. At the same time, you still have agreements around treating them as a as an almost ally. It, it's a complicated situation. Resiliency is an important thing. You know, I've been saying this quite a bit over the last few years, is especially in relations to China, is that we need to think more in terms of what do we need to do to be competitive 
what are those types of innovations that we need to focus on to really stay, stay two, three steps ahead of the Chinese who are tremendously underestimated, right? One of the biggest dangers that policymakers face today is just, just simply ignorance. They really don't know what's happening in China. Yeah. They yeah. don't realize that China is for many of our semiconductor companies, as well as tech companies, the hotbed of innovation. You want to talk about where IoT is happening, right? At a very practical level, whether it's uh, automating or creating autonomous or smart, whatever you want to call it, manufacturing or factories, or if it's smart infrastructure for the you know, transportation of tomorrow, it's happening in China. And you can argue till your face is blue that it's not, but it, it, I'm sorry, it is. Well, I think this is a fascinating topic, but I don't think we have time for it today. Leonard <laughs> <laughs> will come to your podcast and please yes. remind our audience about your podcast and we'll come there. We'll yes. put a link at the bottom. And we'll talk about it there. How about that? That sounds great. Okay, yeah. So for everyone that's listening to this wonderful podcast, you're more than welcome to stop by and check out the Rethink podcast, which is Next Curve's official podcast on the Next Curve media channel. You can find it at www.next-curve.com. And I also have a research portal there have a lot of publicly available research content uh, there. And I'm going to make sure that we have a ton of Roger there, as well as Matt and Don. We're going to have a lot of fun. So please come check uh, Next Curve out and subscribe. And we'll hopefully continue this conversation in the near future. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you.